Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Centric Podcast The Desert Island Gems from Season 1 For today is Sister Julie Siddiqui from London uh, She's a community activist who has been active for many many years On a whole host of community issues But particularly she talks about her own conversion in this interview um, She's also a campaigner for the role of women Particularly in society and Muslim women in mosques and representation and she talks about the song that makes her cry so please do look out for that in this interview sister julie is somebody who's always very positive very passionate and very pragmatic and this is something that really comes across in this interview and hopefully if you know julie that this is something that she um, certainly is very good at motivating and inspiring others i hope you enjoy the podcast and please do support and like us and subscribe on your platform provider and also keep in touch with us on social media. So until next time, assalamu alaikum. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. So our guest today is Sister Julie Siddiqui. Julie is a community activist and was listed in the Times newspaper as one of the 100 most influential Muslim women in the UK. She has been a contributor to Pause for Thought with BBC Radio and can often be seen on TV with her trademark pink hijab. Julie has particularly focused on promoting the role of Muslim women in society and her other passion is interfaith initiatives, particularly building relationships between the Muslim and Jewish community. Julie converted to Islam in 1995 and is currently married with four children. So, Sister Julie, assalamu alaikum and welcome. So, you seem to be balancing so many different parts of your life as, you know, as an activist, as a mum. How do you manage it all? Yeah, I mean, people often ask this, and I think I I normally say that actually I don't always manage because these things are always difficult, and you forever having to kind of re-evaluate re things and think where you're out of balance and where you're spending maybe too much time on one thing and less time on something else. So, and, you know, sometimes I always say to people that sometimes my house is chaotic um, and things are not quite going how they might seem. Um, you know, I make all sorts of mistakes. And so I think it's always about just trying to rebalance and relook at yourself every now and again. And make sure and also for me you know as I get older I am very I guess choosy about who I hang out with I think it's really important to be around the right kind of people that keep you grounded but also um, positivity or should I say negativity is something I really find very difficult in people and so I find myself trying to be around people that make me feel better or uplifted but also challenge me or make me ask myself, should I be doing more of this, less of that? So I think, you know, in terms of managing, yes, I do a lot. I'm lucky I have good mental energy. I think I always feel that. Sometimes my body maybe is struggling a bit, but my mind is very um, positive, I guess, but also energetic. And I would say that I have reached 45 and actually feel more, in some ways, energetic than I ever have. Um, so I think that's a, I'm lucky in that way. And this sense of being active and not accepting the status quo and going for change, has that, has that been there throughout the whole of your life or did that come later on? No, I mean, it's a really good question and I've often wondered this. It certainly wasn't there when I was younger. Um, 
And I don't think that's just because I wasn't Muslim when I was younger. I think it was just something that maybe was there. I've tried to wonder this, you know, looked at these personality profiles and things that people do and wonder, was it, was it, was there always an activist in me that just wasn't coming out or wasn't tapped into? It's very difficult to know that. Um, I lacked a lot of confidence when I was younger. Self-confidence just in terms of, you know, I couldn't be around lots of people and speak in public. And actually, it's a very common thing amongst lots of people. Women, I guess, but men as well. Um, so I struggled with that. You found it difficult to talk? I found it very difficult to talk in public. I'll always remember, I've mentioned this to people before, I've all, you know, genuinely remember how, even when I say in my early 20s, I was working in an open plan office. Birthday came round. Um, the idea then that everyone made a collection and then gave a present to the person whose birthday it was. And I remember it, it was coming up to mine and I just worked myself up so much at the idea that, what, six, seven people would stand around my desk and give me a present and watch me open it. I was freaking out about the idea. Um, and I literally ended up getting to the point where I said to my manager or, who, or whoever, can you please just not do it on my birthday? Can you just give it to me? So I, you know, I appreciate it, but I can't stand the thought of people standing around me and me having to speak in public, which seems odd now, but at the time that was a big thing for me. So I think I've, so whether that was what would stop me from being, I don't know. I've often wondered this myself. And, you know, straight away after I got married, I converted in 95 and I got married in 96, literally a year or so later. I moved um, to Slough. It's a very different area to where I grew up. And I did, I carried on working for a bit. Then I had my first child. And then I got involved in sort of community stuff, I guess, straight away, locally, very much linked to my life and my own need to make friends and have friends for my kids and stuff. I didn't go back to work work after that. I didn't. I then just got involved in voluntary stuff, learned a lot of lessons, um, you know, met some amazing people, met some horrible people. Um, and that's what kind of shapes you, I guess. It's really, I really am a genuine example of that, of kind of living and learning and figuring it all out as I go along. And still am, of course. And I genuinely see life as a journey. So I think, and I did become active, if you could say it like that, straight away. But it was very live and learn and figure it all out. I didn't have any kind of background of it. Um, but that's been very good for me. You know, setting up a, a charity locally, having no idea what that even means or what do you do or how do you do it. And meeting people, Muslims, who had all sorts of weird intentions about stuff and egos and things you know we all have it you come across people and I couldn't believe it I was kind of naive I thought everyone was like thought like I did they don't um that stuff's been brilliant for me but I think so whether I would have been an activist in stuff had I not been Muslim had I not you know I don't know it's difficult and I, certainly for me the faith has been a very very important part of that of course it has um, but it's also been about me and my confidence and kind of finding the right people and, you know, so that, that's helped me a lot, I think. So tell us about the first item you're going to take with you to this desert island. Yeah, so I, um, I've loved actually doing this, by the way, so thanks for the opportunity. And um, I love Desert Island Discs, so I'm a huge fan of that, as you know. Um, so I've chosen this poem called Don't Quit, which came to me, so I felt I should put it in because sometimes things just come and then you have to... And, and the problem with a process like this is that you can overthink it as well and there's lots you can choose, but sometimes if something comes, why is it coming up? Well, actually, it's coming up for a reason. 
So I just remember it. I remember it on some sort of plaque or wooden something. I need to ask actually my family. I can't remember. I'll have to ask my mum. One of those kind of things that you buy at the seaside type of thing. And it's called Don't Quit. And for me, it's the obvious bit about not giving up. But I think there's also, as part of my faith, stuff in here around not being ungrateful and being able to, you know, uh, appreciate what's around and you know because it mentions I'll read, I'll read a bit of it I don't think I should read all of it because it's quite long and it, it comes up as sometimes these things come up online as being attributed to one person or another but actually it also comes up as being anonymous so I have no idea really who wrote it um, but the first sort of few lines that I always remember when things go wrong as they sometimes will when the road you're trudging seems all uphill when the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile but you have to sigh When care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is queer with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns. And many a failure turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow, you may succeed with another blow. And I just really, and it goes, there's another couple of verses. And I love it, I love it because it just... um, it's a very good reminder of what we all need to do. It's a really good reminder of how, for example, we know that we're taught that um, we're not burdened with things that we can't handle. Sometimes we think that can't possibly be true because this seems like a thing that I can't possibly ever deal with. And of course, we're given the reassurance, I guess, from Allah that we can. Um, so for me, all of that is in there. The whole thing around, you know, funds are low debts are high you know i relate to that we've we've i've come from a i guess humble background and you know to a certain extent in the work that i'm doing you know you don't become a millionaire through this work let's just say that um and so sometimes you know this aspect of life is challenging people always say that financial um sort of challenges with money can be a thing that make or break a relationship for example they don't say that for nothing. There's a there's very something very much in there, and I can relate to that. You know, thank God, alhamdulillah, I'm still um, very much uh, happily married. But I can see how that can become a big thing. So I think that was always something that struck me when I was younger, but also as you get older and you go through a few knocks and things happen, and it's just so true. If you can just get over and beyond certain um, struggles and hurdles it really is good for you. It's just at the time, it just doesn't feel like it. Um, And so it's about trying to uh, make sure that we appreciate that stuff. And I I think that is about gratitude as well and humility. And yes, sometimes things seem so much better for others, but actually just work on what you have. And sometimes the grass always seems greener on the other side and often it just isn't. Um, And the more, I I love listening to... um, interviews and stories and reading biographies and stuff and part of it I think is because you really learn about other people through that and normally you know everyone if they're humble enough to admit it has been through all sorts of challenges and has somehow come out the other end and maybe still are in it and people that go through mental illness for example and how they dealt with it so I find that stuff really fascinating for me this um, poem has all of that in there and you said, you've talked a bit about your childhood. Can you describe and paint us a picture of what life was like growing up for you? Yeah, so I grew up in um in an area... My mum and dad divorced when I was quite young, and I kind of can't remember fully when, but it would have been when I was still in my infant school, so beyond before sort of about seven, eight or so. 
Um, there were issues before that and then they um, divorced. So that was challenging, but I was lucky in that my um, I lived with my mum and my mum, you know, has always been very much a sort of central figure in a very simple, unassuming way. And um, so she kept things going and we lived a very simple, but I think very happy life. Um, I grew up in a cul-de-sac. I had, I mean, I've got three, there's three sisters and then I have a half a brother as well um, who lives in Glasgow actually funny enough um, so I had you know my mum and dad had both been married before they had me to others and then and then my mum remarried again um, so our sort of the, the, the dynamic within our family has always been interesting shall we say um, but for me that's just part of me so I grew up um, having you know a dad somewhere else and a mum at home and then my mum remarried with a stepdad and some of the sort of challenges that can come with that early on um, but generally speaking, I, I feel when I look back on my childhood, I think it was positive and I was happy and I was lucky. Um, we lived in a kind of quiet um, cul-de-sac, uh, which was, ha- and I have very happy memories of that, very happy memories of playing outside long summers. So it was genuinely, you know, very content in that way. Um, and then I just gradually, when, when I moved, uh, when I started working, sorry, that was when the world kind of opened up a bit for me. Um, I wasn't really aware of politics or and not interested. We didn't really speak about that stuff at home at all. I didn't really understand what was happening in the world. I remember um, the Iraq war and things were starting and happening and you know, I didn't really understand it. I didn't understand the impact of it for us people here. I kind of remember various things happening around that time in the world and here that I didn't understand at all. And when I started working, I worked in West London and that's when the kind of world opened up a bit for me because I grew up in Surrey in a nice cul-de-sac and kind of very living a nice life and sheltered and then grew up and came up and suddenly realised, wow, there's a world beyond that as well. And was faith present in the household or do you remember during your upbringing were you searching or thinking or looking for something or did that come later on? No, I mean, again, it's a good question. I've thought about this. We certainly didn't talk about... um, God that I can remember we certainly didn't talk about those things at home really um, much at all I don't remember having those conversations and I've often wondered and in fact my kids being sort of coming into teens now and asking me all sorts of challenging questions sometimes have often asked me did you look at other religions did you kind of you know um and certainly when I was growing up at that time, I didn't, um, I don't think I was really actively searching. But having said that, as I started to get older, um, I do remember and really clearly remember thinking, is this it? You know, it's kind of, I'm, once I started working and um, going to work, earning more money, going out with friends, doing it all again the next day, go, you know, it's kind of, well, what is this about? You know, what's, the, what's life about? So I do remember thinking that. I don't think I consciously um, thought about it in any specific way as such, but it was definitely something that was there for me. Um, And then I guess when I started working with people that were different to me, then that's when you get an opportunity, and people always talk about this, it's a very powerful thing when you can actually ask people and see them and wonder and sort of look from afar. And as I said, I mentioned I was quite lacking in confidence I wasn't the kind of life and soul of the party type person really at all I was I had a few friends I did my thing I was hard working I was a good employee all that stuff 
um, then there are all these other people around me, you know, all these different people from different backgrounds, different parts of the world, um, some born here, some not. It was really good for me, um, coming from that background, really good for me. <clears throat> Tell us about your next item that you're going to take. Uh, so I guess um, related actually to this thing around confidence, I feel so um, the prayer of Musa that is in Surah Taha, which, uh, and I'll, I'll read it, so, yeah. Um, and I guess at the time, obviously, I didn't know this prayer then. Um, and this prayer, you know, is used in lots of different ways to m- mean lots of different things to different people. Surah Taha, uh, verse 25 to 28. Oh my Lord, open my chest and ease my task for me. Remove the impediment from my speech so that they may understand what I say. Um, and as I say, going back to this idea of um, lacking in confidence and not wanting to sort of speak even to three, four people in public. And to now, I wouldn't say I'm always fully comfortable with it, but I certainly do different things to what I would have done then. Because it's fair to say you've probably spoken in front of thousands, yeah, TV, radio. I have, I have now, and um, you know, I am a, I am a genuine example of a few things that people talk about in theory. I can sort of testify that they are real. One of those very real things is. Um, I was putting at the deep end what I saw as the deep end a few times by people who I thought knew me asked me to do something and I thought to myself what are you talking about why do you think I can do this and when it's people that you trust and other stuff you kind of have to listen to them so I remember you know really quite in my sort of early you know mid-20s I guess or late 20s and being asked to do things and by that time I was a Muslim so I was much more involved in active stuff but still struggling with this issue and being asked to lead something or stand up and do something and myself thinking there's no way I can do that and then the person oh come on it's fine and do it and doing it and then afterwards anybody who knows this feeling knows how good it feels when you do it when you do it and afterwards you feel like you can take on the world then for maybe for a few minutes uh, and you feel like you can fly and it's a brilliant feeling and it's it's very real so for people who struggle with this particularly public speaking because lots of people don't like the idea of it and lots of people may never have to do it but you know for me to go from where I was genuinely where I was to now in not that long a time with what's that about some of it is about that being put in at the deep end doing it the more you do it the easier it becomes you realize you're not going to die you know nothing's going to happen and actually the other thing that was really powerful at that time for me was when you do something and you feel like you're so nervous and your body is shaking and you feel sick and when you do it people love it or they like it or they comment or they comment you think what are you talking about i was dying inside and when you do it people compliment or whatever and you think well they didn't even realize i felt like that so i always say to people now anybody that asks me I always say to people, look, no one knows what's going on in your tummy. If you've got nerves, and it's not a bad thing, and actually some actors, and they all have it as well. So it's about managing it, but really crucially, and what happened over time, and this can be attributed to a number of people, a number of approaches. I was involved in a business called Amway, 
which I kind of realized after time and spending money and all sorts of things, actually, from a business financial perspective, it wasn't going to do anything for me. I wasn't going to become the thing that they told us we were going to become. Certainly I wasn't. But the business side of it was very much about positive mental attitude and developing confidence. I owe a lot to that time. I owe a lot to some of those tapes that I heard for people back then. They were on cassette tapes of positive motivational speakers from America and stuff who I may not actually relate to as much now, but at that time I could take from it. And I've always um, been good at, I think, um, the sort of supermarket approach taking. If you listen to someone's speech or a story, you just might not relate to a lot of it, but you just need to pick out the little nuggets and just take it in. And I always did that. So that stuff, you know, much as I sort of look back on it and laugh a bit about some of the stuff that I used to go to and whatever, actually a lot of it actually was really good for me. And the general approach of looking at life in a positive way um, definitely started then, I think. And so I owe a lot to that. But it's, you know, and, and this this prayer, I've said literally sitting in a, you know, in, in, a, in a newsroom waiting to go on TV, literally. I've even sent it to other people who are in that position. I think it's a very nice way to connect with and just sort of keep yourself grounded and to remember that this amazing figure from history, Musa, may God be pleased with him. He, you know, he said it and I mean, because he had a problem with his um, speech and needed and prayer. And so I, f- I feel the direct connection for me with it. And I didn't know it at that time, but of course now I do. So I feel, you know, it's, it's a very nice, um, it's a very um, comforting but also uh, it's a very real reminder. It's a real reminder as well of um, humility and just knowing that God knows everything and you're not going to be um, given anything you can't handle. Let's hear your next item that you've chosen. Yeah, so again, moving towards sort of um, looking at Islam and um, I met Muslims at that time and I was in this kind of world of suddenly opened up for me. I met Muslims then, I met people from different backgrounds, but particularly Muslims that kind of um, stuck out for me, I guess. And I started on this sort of journey, which actually took quite a few years for me. Some people make decisions about this very quickly, and for me, it was much slower. And I distinctly remember, and always have to try and credit this with, um, at that time, I wasn't interested necessarily in science or anything at all, but I just couldn't escape from the fact that the um, scientific stuff that's in the Quran is very powerful because you just can't get away from the fact that how would anybody from 1400 years ago know this stuff that scientists are discovering now? And things around reproduction and the water cycle and um, seas and all of these things were um, amazing to me. Because even in you know my very sort of probably naive, simple life that I lived kind of way, in a way, I was a very simple, understanding type person. Um, kind of mind blowing in a way because you think where did that even come from? And when you sort of trace it back and think about and learn about Muhammad peace be upon him and what he was and who he was and how did he come out with that stuff and how did where did that come from? And I think then. If, you, if that really gets inside you, as it did for me then, then the idea that the Quran definitely comes from God and that Muhammad was the last prophet of God, for me, cemented quite early on. I don't, I've never questioned it. I might question other stuff or figure out or what does this mean or 
But that aspect of it, which I know sounds obvious because that's what we have to believe in, but that was quite early on for me in some ways. Um, I could have picked any really. I picked this one, uh, Surah 23, verse 18, and we send down water from the sky according to due measure, and we cause it to soak in the soil. We certainly are able to drain it off with ease. So that's just an example of, you know, the kind of water cycle. It just really did make an impression on me and was very helpful, I guess, in cementing that thing that's actually really important. Were you looking for something? or were you, were No, there... I mean, I think, I've again, I've thought about this a lot. There were a few people that I worked with. I The person I'm married to now, I met at my workplace as well. Um, and I think the at that time, the thing that really um, was very important to me was that I made sure that the people I, or whatever I was looking at, had to be about me and not about anybody else. You know, sometimes when you're around people, so... Um, he was there, my husband now, but my and other people, I remember Muslims there fasting and praying. It was quite a kit and I'd never seen that before, even on TV or anything. But was it just a general curiosity? I guess there would have been other faiths, other yeah, cultures. I mean, there, what was it? And this is what I, start... again, this is what I've thought about. I think part of it was the um, the simplicity of what I saw as it seemed like a simplicity to me. The appeal of people and the kind of people, so not just the person I ended up marrying, but other f- few of the other people that were there, you know, there was a there was a definite um, simplicity about it that I found curious. And what I did very quickly, and to their credit, anybody who I came into contact with very much left me to look into it myself and to start reading things myself, um, because it's quite important, and meet people. People have always been important to me, even though at that time I didn't realise how important relationships and connecting hearts are for me so I think that made an impression on me that kind of simplicity the idea that people pray what is that even about I hadn't been around people that prayed regularly to God so for people to be in a workplace go off and pray then come back and carry on was kind of um, intriguing for me and I feel like the um, fairly early on it sort of made sense to me but at the same time really confused me as well because I hadn't looked into stuff like that before I'd never looked into any um scriptures or whatever before so in a way was it just to better understand the religion of these friends and colleagues that you were no I don't think it was that because if if it had been more about that I would have done that with some of the other faiths you know there were people from different Asian backgrounds and stuff there I'm sure there were probably you know Buddhists and other people there certainly mostly English uh, people maybe of no faith or whatever there so I think it was something fairly early on I you know some of this um, the stuff that I'm talking about around the Quran itself and some of the snippets and things that I saw um, definitely appealed to me and you know the you know the simplicity of Islam is what it is you cannot get away from the fact that it's so um, simple to understand in many ways we actually make it complicated and we um really do over overdo it sometimes when it comes to this and if you're able to just go back there's nothing like that feeling that I've had then you know I look back and someone asked me recently about Ramadan and 
the first Ramadan I had, after I'd become Muslim, so this was, you know, fast-forwarding a kind of few years, and it took me a few years to decide, am I really doing this for me? Do I really understand this? Do I need to understand more? Am I um, doing something I don't know what I'm doing? What will everyone think? When I'm asked questions, will I know what to say? You know, this is very real stuff for people often that are looking at uh, Islam. And I had all of that. And I was very worried about, am I doing it for this person? Am I doing it for me? What's this about? It was a really key thing for me. And in a way, I probably then overthought that process and, and waited a long time, probably longer than I needed to, to think, no, actually, of course, this is what you believe. And it really did sink into me, this stuff, you know, the, the things I'm talking about and the kind of a few few things here and there that people said. You know, that's why it's so... Um, really fascinating for me because I don't always have a good memory about everything but there's certain things that I can remember at that time that did make an impression on me I went to a few events people said a few things kind of stuck with me and in that sense it's so fascinating because actually you never know you never know who's looking or what they're looking for even we don't know that about anybody do we and and when you're looking and understanding a bit more about Islam before you converted was that a was that giving you a sense of peace in your mind or was it kind of messing about with your head saying, look, is this right? Or, you know, how am I making sense of this? I mean, yeah, I mean, ser- I think, serenity. I think it um, clarified things and made things make much more sense. You know, all of a sudden, the, the bits that I mentioned uh, that I've thought about before about um, not really knowing what is this life about because you start to, if you think like that, you can start to think, well... I'm earning more money, I've got my friends, I go to work, I come back, I do my thing, I carry on next day, same thing, and what's this about? Where's this life heading? So I had been already sort of thinking about some of that anyway. Um, this just meant that there, it just gave things much more clarity and much more purpose. And the sort of the simple aspects of Islam, believing in one God, having a direct relationship with God, believing in, you know, messages and prophets from history, but also that there's, you know, these things have been written down and we've been told how to live our life, but we have to make it work in our current circumstances and context. And so all of that kind of made me feel um, much more certain that this seemed to be giving me the answers that I needed or the, the sort of structure, I think, and perspective. Um, whether it messed with my head, I think the bit that messed with my head was actually me and me overthinking it and overthinking and worrying about do I need to be at a certain level and do I understand this stuff? And, you know, I would open the Quran and sometimes still do now and you open it and you kind of think, I don't know what this is. What is this? You know, it's not a book, is it? It's not something you just read through and you get it. It's very different. So, and that, that's amazing and that's a miracle. It can also be quite difficult when you're first looking at that stuff. And even now, you know, I open it and kind of think, okay, how does this work? But because I feel um, completely satisfied with what it is or what it represents, I don't get upset about it. The issue would have been then was, I'm worrying about, do I know enough? And mm. what does it mean to say I'm a Muslim? And um, <clears throat> I find it funny now when I look back and sort of... Um, but I can understand why I felt that because it does. This does seem like so much, and it was different to what I'd been brought up with. Very different. So it wasn't even as if we're talking about somebody who had 
consciously made a decision that there was a God or somebody who had made a decision that there wasn't a God. I kind of was just in the middle of all of that. Nothing had really come to me. And that sounds hard now, I think, for people to understand, but that's how that's how it was for me. I never kind of thought about it either way. So this gave, um, and I think the reason perhaps I pushed back on it was the um, element, and I'm talking about a few years now of me doing this, and um, how do I make sure this is definitely for me and not for anybody else? And how do I make sure that I know enough? And we, I, I absolutely know that, that you never know enough. You know, what is enough? I mean, you just never know enough. But that, but that has to be seen as positive. That was the bit that kind of messed with me a bit, I think. Can you can you describe the day that you took your shahada? Yeah, I mean, I... Um, it doesn't stick in my mind as much as something else, and I'll mention that something else in a minute. So the day I took my shahada was in a mosque, and the imam, you know, tried his best to make it a good experience, um, but it was it was fairly uneventful, really. I suppose the so in a way, I think the bigger thing for me was um, right. Okay, so I've kind of done it now. It's like I've drawn a line in a way, and this is what I am. And, but I kind of already knew I was that thing anyway, that person. Um, the, the the tricky bit for me was, I guess, the um, worrying about how I was tell I tell my family. Um, that bit I can remember very clearly, because I can remember going home and going in and sort of literally having to say, "Look, can you turn the TV off? Because I really have got something to say." Kind of having to do it that way. And it's not to say, and I don't know, I'm sure if you were to ask them, they would probably feel, yeah, of course, there was some sort of sense of something different, but um, they wouldn't have necessarily what to expect. They certainly didn't know what was this announcement going to be. It could have been anything. So I can still remember that feeling because that was quite nerve-wracking. But, you know, thank God, um, then and since then, my family and the people around me that are important... Um, have always been very supportive, even remember, right from that time. Do you remember the first words that they said once you told them that that day? Um, I can't remember it fully. And maybe I need they... to. Yeah, no, I mean they kind of said, "Oh, that's you know, that's that's good, or well, that's nice." Um, and I remember my older sister very early on, and it would have been in those first couple of days, saying, um, "As long as you can still be the same person, I don't really mind what you do." That's quite important. I've always remembered that. Um, and that was key for them, I guess, because they then didn't know what does this even mean. And I'm sure they would have had their own conversations amongst themselves about it. Um, so that was a key thing for them. I think then I started on a, the next part of my life. Um, to a certain extent, I do consciously remember thinking that um, to an extent, they're going to have to just see what happens now. Like, I was confident that I would be a better person for it. They kind of just had to see. I can't, you can't, it's about, you know, actions, not words kind of thing. So I kind of had to let that happen. I look back and cringe at some stuff because I think I made mistakes in terms of things that I said or ways I tried to approach things. And I sort of cringe at that now because I think I didn't understand enough I didn't know how to handle it. Um, and I feel, you know, nothing major, nothing drastic, nothing kind of, but just small, small things in relating to people. And the, I'm trying to explain my faith to people. 
um, and how that played out in my family and things, <clears throat> I think I um, kind of look back and think, oh my gosh, did I actually do that or say that? Uh, things with, you know, with family and I, you know, feel, um, I don't feel guilty about it because life goes on and you have to just get over that stuff. But I remember it as a kind of cringe moment a bit of just saying a few things and stuff. So I think I, but one thing we've always tried to do is to keep um, connected with the family, my family, um, all parts of our family. And um, that connection is really important to me. And it's important because they, you know, I'm still part of that. And sometimes one of the really um, heartbreaking, actually, things for uh, converts is some of the advice, and I sort of say that in inverted commas, that they get about their other fam- their family or the fact that they have to change their name or the fact that they're made to do certain things. You know, often we're very poor, actually, frankly, at supporting converts properly and still are poor. And it's sad to say after 20 years that it's, the, the, it's still poor. You know, it's a very great celebratory trophy thing, it feels, sometimes when someone becomes Muslim. Um, everybody surrounds them at the mosque and it's all lovely and whatever, but where's the support after that? And how do they get helped in terms of keeping that relationship with their family and how are they made to feel when it's Christmas and what they're supposed to do and it's you know you're going through all sorts of stuff and you know but I absolutely firmly believe and know that to make someone feel that they have to somehow pretty much cut off from that stuff and then supposed to carry on with it's just nonsense and there's no way you know we know that all of the people around the prophet peace be upon him were converts so where are the stories of that happening? It didn't happen like that. You know, he was much more um, understanding because people came from different families and different backgrounds. And, you know, it's, it's a, everyone's different. Everybody's story is different. And I just feel um, very sad when people are made to feel that. And obviously now I can say this sort of 20 years later, um, but I say it with a sense of, um, frustration, almost anger at times now because I feel we're still there. You know, people now are still told you must um, change your name almost like now. And, you know, have you been circumcised? And if not, you need to go and do it now. You know, this is to a 40 year old guy who's just been all, you know, this stuff is just nonsense the way people approach it. And the sort of ongoing support and trying to keep people connected is so important because that, that, you know, people are, that's them. You are the sum of everything that's happened to you. That's the same for people who haven't, you know, converted later on. And I was in my 20s. People sometimes do it in their 40s or 50s. And they may not be perfect and they may not understand everything. And even if they do, who are you to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do? Give them advice, guide, be friends, you know, support, help them learn to pray, all that stuff. It's really important. But don't make people draw that thick black line when it comes to things like Christmas and family and anniversaries and birthdays and weddings and going into other people's, you know, celebrations. That, you know, that stuff is still part of you. I remember feeling really torn at times. And that, again, you process it and you kind of look back and think, wow, did I actually really struggle with that? Why? Why did I make myself struggle? I struggled because the advice I was getting was conflicting with me. It didn't sit right with me, but I felt it was, they knew what they would, the Muslims knew what they were talking about. And, you know, it's taken time to get to where I am now. And I can say this with ease, but at that time it was hard. Tell us about your next item, Julie. Yeah, so my next item, um, I couldn't possibly, you know, talk about any of this stuff really without talking about my um, husband, best friend, 
Uh, we've been married 20 years. We have four children. The verse, O oh, oh, humankind, we created you from a male and a female, and we made you races and tribes for you to get to know each other. The most noble of you in the sight of God are those who are the most conscientious, and God has full knowledge and is well aware of all things. Um, so we, you know, he was born in Britain. His family are Pakistani origin. Um, for some of them, when I, um, when we were sort of initially thinking about getting married, and it, it had been uh, sort of discussed, but we didn't know if it was ever going to happen. Um, you know, it was hard for them. It was hard for them because he'd grown up in a certain way. They had certain ideas about who he'd marry. And then we kind of, you know, I guess threw a spanner in the works for that. Um, I feel, and, and I feel for them because I'm a parent now with kids and, you know, how I'm going to approach it will be interesting. It's all very well when you're in that. And when you're a parent, you realise, wow, we're going to have to deal with this with our children and how do we deal with it? Um, but I think one thing I would say is that we, again, with... Um, his family as well we've just tried you just try to keep those connections and I'm certainly not you know perfect in that um, and you're always wondering if you're doing enough I'm always wondering that but I have a good relationship with um, my mother-in-law I have you know good connection with the family I've been to Pakistan twice that was amazing um, people always ask me you know did you like it and but I did I loved it I think when you go to Pakistan you just have to go with the flow and I've got a kind of we both have got a very we're able to kind of just let things happen because if you have a plan it, it won't work in Pakistan when you go there for a wedding or so I enjoyed it I felt felt lucky you know I feel lucky to be to have family from different backgrounds and sort of how we manage it in the middle is what's interesting for us um so I think it's a blessing and this you know, the thing about I find it really interesting because we as again 20 years later I kind of still see and hear frankly sometimes racism within the Muslim communities which is a harsh thing to say but it's very real you know this idea that people marry someone and actually not necessarily someone from a completely different background but actually someone very close village village different you know different Asian backgrounds ethnicities etc we still have that problem you know black Asian I mean it's, it's a real challenge I think. You talked a bit earlier about the difficulties some new Muslims have uh, particularly I guess about um, the support they receive and I guess you know you often hear about people that then leave the faith having having converted was your husband really important in that was it important that I guess you got married early on and there was that support naturally there for those first few years yeah I mean we we're lucky in that we have you know we sort of have a good um, friendship and I've definitely you know um feel very much that had it had I married someone different it would have been very different for me and it, it's kind of an obvious thing to say but I feel like he you know if I could play a song I would play a kind of you know wind beneath my wings or something uh, because I you know I genuinely feel that whatever I am um, a huge uh, part of it is because of him um, and so the kind of um, him reassuring particularly I guess early on I had I really lacked self-confidence and so I needed him and in that sense you know would have been difficult for him it's very difficult when you're living with someone that can put themselves down or lacks confidence um, and he was absolutely key in that really um, I owe a lot to him in that sense and you know and then sort of um, living and learning and growing together um, 
has also been crucial and we're lucky we've um we, we've sort of similar but actually in some ways quite different as well so i think we've made it work somehow but he you know we as a couple you're forever having to kind of renew renew your um intentions relook at life things change you know and, and stuff's very challenging when you have children that are young is one thing as they get older it's something else and everybody said to me when you have um small kids it's very actively physically demanding and as they get older it's mentally demanding and of course they're absolutely right that's absolutely the case it's it's physically it's a lot less but mentally and kind of how to guide them and um keep them connected and all of that is not always easy um and so i think we have to constantly remind but you know i'm genuinely i hope that god gives me long enough life with him to genuinely sort of enjoy say the next inshallah 20 years in a different way and that can be a lot more also about us too as well you know often the sort of with with children we had four and obviously a lot of people have more um there's no doubt that becomes very much part of there's there's a lot of focus around that and that's right and that's fine and i'm genuinely looking forward to being able to explore stuff and life and meaning and things like that with him when that's we've got less pressure in the with the children i guess so you know inshallah if god gives us long enough then we can see what we can do in the next 20 years inshallah so julie tell us about the next item you've chosen <clears throat> okay so um i've chosen a song called dear god by Dald warnsby which as far as i'm aware hasn't really been kind of released um into the public as such as much as i feel it should be um, I've always loved Dawood Warnsby right from when I first became Muslim, right from when the kids were small and we looked, watched Adam's World and we listened to, you know, Children of the World and all of that stuff. And I still feel very um, connected to all of that, even though some people have kind of moved away from it. I actually still really feel very connected to it. Um, and this, but this song, so I love him. I love him because he is... Um, He's very, he's unique. He's so genuine and sincere and authentic. He is um, very humble, genuinely humble. Dear God, I've heard your name from teachers, family and friends. You made the universe and so we'll live on when it ends. But everyone I know admits they've never seen your face. They are not sure where you live and have no map to the place. I thought perhaps a letter or a postcard could be mailed. Since I didn't have your address, that idea kind of failed. My mum told me that I can talk to you if I just pray. So God, well, here I am, no, I'm not sure just what to say. She said I'd never see you, but she said you're always there. You're never fast asleep and somehow you're always aware. She said that you'd remember me if I remember you. Said you'd always help me if I ever asked you to. I am just one child you made out of millions I would guess. I try my best but sometimes even that turns out a mess. So I'd like you to help me with the stuff that I find tough Like feeling sad and lonely or like I'm not good enough 
I'd gladly pay the debt somehow, give something back to you. But since you're lord of everything, there's not much I could do. The only things that come to mind to make this all seem fair are to thank you and remember that you are always there. When I first heard it, I was in someone's. I'd, I'd made, been able to arrange for him to do a a few small intimate performances at people's houses and um, it was almost like what I, I was able to I felt very happy that I was able to do it because I knew they would benefit because everybody always does so he did a mini sort of performance in my friend's garden it was amazing sun shining everything uh, he sang this song I'd never heard it before and I cried I cried my eyes out I cried you know all I thought where is that coming from and I cried I cried in you know in there and then I I love it I love it because it's um very powerful and speaks directly to me and I'm sure to others who hear it um, but it's just it really does get you to think about and reflect on lots of parts of your life and who you are and you know I've always one of the things that I um, love about being Muslim is that we have a direct connection with God and you know again it sounds obvious but not everybody has that whether that's people of no faith of course they don't feel that but also people of other faiths don't feel that in the same way i work a lot with people of different faiths and when i'm around people of other faith jewish christian etc i you know far from it um making me feel less of a muslim or less part of connect i actually feel more connected to my faith but respectful of them and one of the aspects of it for me is this thing this very much and this song is about you know, a direct conversation with God. And it also touches on the stuff about, you know, for me, it's like, um, it's, it's about a parent, being a parent and always praying that my kids keep a connection with God, whatever that form that takes, because that's something I probably can't control as much as I'd like to. Things are not black and white and in a box. And, you know, when it talks about other faiths and looking through other scriptures and things like that for me it's key as well you know I believe that we the world is made up of so many different sorts of people um, there are people who Christians who spend their whole time just praying I say just praying I genuinely wonder to myself what would the world be like if we didn't have people like that it would be even worse than it is now I genuinely feel that at an event recently which was training uh, people to become Christian ministers and they wanted me to talk about stuff work that I do and Islam and etc and then in the afternoon they had a silent retreat try and retreat element of it and it was fascinating for me so I said I'll hang around and the whole afternoon is silent and no one speaks to each other and at lunch no one spoke to each other and it was kind of odd because I speak a lot um, very powerful though and actually you know I left that and then a couple of days later I was in Oxford Street in a very different environment and the Harry Krishna kind of people came through singing and chanting and just that whole period I remember thinking you know it's so powerful because there are people who um, I believe are praying to the same God like for me it's one God so they're doing it in different ways and they don't understand it in the way that I do but I genuinely believe that they're playing a role in the world and so that stuff's really powerful for me but to have then the connection of God that I have which comes through for me in this song it's very powerful and I heard it again I cried again I remember I, I sent him an email and I said you know what are you trying to do I put it on the in the car and I was going up the motorway to Manchester or somewhere and I was crying my eyes out 
oh, what are you doing? I can't, you know, and then I've sat, I've sat on the tube before and thought, shall I play or shall I not? Because people are like, what's wrong with her? <laughs> and um, so I hope that it has the same impact that people haven't heard it. And I've also said to him, you have to do something with this song because it's very powerful. I think people who aren't religious or other Muslims or people from other faiths would love this song because it's coming from a very genuine place. That's his heart, isn't it? He's got a very um, genuine heart. And then I asked him to at least could he uh, perform at Living Islam Festival, which he did last year. So I, I kind of take a little bit. If, if anyone sat in the crowd crying, that's down to me. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he would have done it anyway. So I just hope that it comes out somehow on somewhere because it would be brilliant for the world to hear this song. And you mentioned that that sort of seems to transcend all sort of religions and that idea of faith in one God. Um, but you work, you do work a lot with faith communities, particularly Christian and Jewish communities. Mm. Um, and I guess some people would say, look, you know, Muslims got enough issues that we need to focus on. Why do you think that's an important area for you to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I um, I guess I've been doing interfaith, if you say it like that, for a number of years now. Um, in the last few years, I've really benefited in terms of the relationships that I've made with some of those people from those backgrounds, particularly Christian and Jewish, but others, but mainly these two. Um, and the sort of relationship building stuff has been fascinating for me and actually very... Um, very much part of my life and who I am. Um, so some of it is actually quite selfish for me because I mean, it's about me and what I can do and how they can help me and how they can help me be a better person. Um, but it's also about, I guess, them meeting people like me or other Muslims or people who, you know, they don't hear about on the news and TV because actually most of that is negative. So there's a genuine element around helping people to understand what Islam and Muslims are about. For me, there's a genuine element about how can we people of faith um, be much more connected in a in a country that's becoming more and more secular and okay with no faith. Um, we, as people of faith, have a huge amount to offer the world, I believe, and our country. Um, and how do we um, do that? We have to only do that through relationships and trust. And if we then build those connections and trust and friendship with people... Um, despite being different, actually because of being different, I guess you could say, then I think it can only be a good thing for our country. Um, so for me, it's about relationship, trust. I think I didn't really appreciate just how important that stuff is until in the last few years. I guess it's partly my age. As you get older, you kind of realise, wow, this stuff is crucial. You know, If you don't have trust, trust especially... A few things happened in the last few years with Muslims, actually, that I knew, that I thought I knew. And um, then you, they turn out to be very different to people that you thought they were. It's really hard, actually, because then you start to think, wow, I kind of trusted them and they've turned out to be very different. Um, that's always hard on anyone. It's, it, it also is hard because I sometimes come across Muslims that don't make me feel very much connected to my faith and actually feel, make me feel frustrated or... I wonder to myself, what is their faith about if they're doing this or saying that or acting like this? And then equally, you can come across people of other faiths who are absolutely connected with God or make you feel um, better when you're around them and make the world better and are trying. The thing about um, the Jewish and Muslim relationship stuff, which is crucial, key, 
I've realised that over time, again, I've sort of realised this in the last four, five, six years especially, that, yes, people have been doing interfaith. The Jewish-Muslim element kind of gets lost or deliberately doesn't really get very far. I'm at the point now where I feel, as a lot of people do, very upset and very frustrated what's happening in Israel and Palestine. I don't fully understand it. I feel that the approach, if you say about sides, I feel that the approach on both sides, even with people here, is often far too black and white to how it needs to be. I think I can say for my experience of being around Muslims and their passion and um, how upset they feel about Palestine, I understand it, but I sometimes feel that it then means that they won't open up to people from other backgrounds, particularly people from the Jewish background. And then you could say the same the other way around. So I'm very much in a space now where I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do we move beyond what actually has become often really a stalemate, even there and here? And one of the approaches that I've taken, first of all, is working with women, because I think Jewish and Muslim women, because I think that's something that hasn't really been explored much and might just offer something different. And frankly, the work that I have seen and uh, been involved with is different and it is working and I think it's also about then what we do through that work is say look we understand that the issues over there are important to people here but if we only define our relationships with Jews between Jews and Muslims with what's happening in that we're not going to get anywhere here so it's not about saying that's not important it's certainly not for me as a Muslim to say why are Muslims worrying about Palestine so much? It's not my place to say that, and why would I say that? Of course I understand it. There's injustice, and there's a lot happening. And it's been going on for a very long time. People are suffering. But my fear is that we spend another 20 years um, not really getting very far either, and actually there's a lot to offer, a lot to be said for the relationship between Jews and Muslims here. So tell us about your next item, Julie. So actually, leading very nicely onto the next one um, about which is a, a simple three words: um, deeds, not words. Deeds, not words was um, a saying from the suffragettes, and the suffragettes, uh, of course, most people will have heard of in one form or another, were women. Some of the women who were instrumental in it in um, making sure that women had the vote. But of course, there was a lot of other issues around at that time and I um, feel very strongly about some of the issues that are happening in our community or communities when it comes to women and faith and I feel very upset about the fact that you know 20 years ago I was told I couldn't pray in a mosque because there wasn't space for me as it's because I was a woman of course yeah yeah what what happened um I can remember one occasion where I was told that the there wasn't enough space for me to pray. And actually, I think it might have even been on Eid in this particular case. And obviously afterwards, I was told, well, you know, we didn't have space, etc. And I've seen it where I, that's happened to me then and, you know, happened to me last year and has happened to me many times in between in different places. So, for example, last year in Birmingham, we would literally, Nav and I were driving through and it was for... I, Friday and we was it Friday I think it was Friday prayers and we were driving through and thought we'd stop and pray someone it was quite nice I thought it'd be nice to go to a different place etc parked the car walked up and as, as, as soon as we were walking up I thought I can't see any women here um got to the door 
asked which way do I go and he kind of said well did he say sorry I don't know but he said there isn't anywhere for you to pray um, it's horrible it's I mean, heartbreaking how, how, how does that rejection make the sisters feel when things no, like no, that happen? no no the feeling is really it's a, it's a horrible feeling it feels like you've been um, kicked in the stomach sometimes it feels it's because you're you're trying to do something which is um, a very important and noble thing to do. You're not trying to cause trouble or ask anybody to do something that they might find uncomfortable. These are this is these are our places of worship, just as much as they are anybody else's. And to be told that there's not enough space is is horrible. It's really and so it's happened to me 20 years ago. It happened to me last year, and it's happened in between. And of course, it's happened to many many people as well. I think there are more. If I was to take even you know, the mosques in England, the um, and people don't have the figures, interestingly, and that's some of the work that I think needs to happen. Uh, but there will be almost certainly more mosques than not that don't have a space for women to pray. It's not okay. And you know when we say it, when you say it in groups of people that are not Muslim, because we've got used to it, kind of thing. Our, I feel like with mosques, our on this issue anyway, our bar is low, and so when you find a mosque that oh, does have space, for example, the one that I go to locally. The women, yes, they have a space to pray. And actually, in that particular case, I would say, aesthetically, it's probably better than some of the areas that the men pray in in that mosque. It's very open. It, there's lots of windows, etc. It's very clean, da-da-da. But the women have no say on the board. They have no connection with anything that any decisions that are being made. And this is a common issue. So for me, this is really important. It's not part of my faith. And I feel like if... You know, how long do we continue? And of course, it's a challenge because what? how do we approach it? What You know, the suffragettes, some of them approach things in a very, you could say, militant way. That's often the word that people use. They broke windows, they smashed stuff, they burned stuff, they did stuff like that, some of them. And others around that same time were printing leaflets and giving them out and doing the newsletters. I often like to think I would have been one of the people that did newsletters and not smashed windows. But, you know, I can understand their struggle and it's... It's a different struggle. And I, I, I call myself a feminist and I'm fine with that. And a lot of Muslims will feel um, you can't call yourself a feminist because the standard textbook answer is Islam gave rights to women 1400 years ago. Well, that's fine in theory. But what's actually happening on the ground means that people like me need to at least ask the question. The Prophet, peace be upon him, did not treat women like this when it comes to the mosque. So what are you doing? So when, um, you know, the women, the women and sisters are getting told there's no space to pray and sometimes it, you know they'll they may well give reasoning you know the women don't have to pray in the mosque or you know the men take the priority etc does that just make, make you even more angry then well look I think I don't feel this is a simple issue and I don't think there are simple answers because you know we're talking about a community that actually in some ways is still relatively new to this country and the people that came here brought with them ideas and understanding about whatever they knew in their own countries that they came from it's not that long ago so you know some of my and this is the conversation I have to have with some of my activist friends particularly women who already feel fed up with this stuff and think I can't do this I'm, I'm almost unmosking myself is what they call it it's a film that came out in America called Unmosk it wasn't just women it's men as well on this issue but a load of other stuff as well like leaving not wanting to go and either remaining away from institutions sometimes moving away from the faith 
because they don't feel they have a place to go that can help them or um, setting up their own places and to be quite honest I think my feeling is that all of that is bound to happen and we just have to recognize it is happening and then what are we going to do about it I don't think there's one silver bullet answer at all I think that the conversations that I'm now seeing actually frankly speaking led by women are what need to happen which is just ask the questions get someone to think about what they're actually saying get someone to understand because one of the things that I think has happened which surprises me is that men I guess my age the sort of second now into third generation haven't really um, taken this issue on if we're just talking about this issue in a way that I probably expected or hoped that they would in a very direct way there's a lot of still, you know, well, you know, there are uncles and they are kind of, they're the people that first set up, they're the first generation, these mosques are evolving, have patience, sister, you know, you don't really need to come. And these are people who, and this isn't just, as I say, this is second, third generation uh, men as well. And you know, I live with one of them that I've said to him, you know, actually you and people like you, you haven't really taken this issue on in a way that I probably expected you to do. Julie, take us to your next item. Yeah, so, I mean, I've... Um, this is a hadith which... Um, so I'll read it out. It mentioned, God will not show mercy to those who do not show mercy. All creatures are God's family and God loves those most who treat their fa- family well and kindly. Actually, it's a kind of combination of a couple of different um, hadith that I saw. I sort of merged it a bit. Um, and I also listened to a fantastic... Um, interview really recently which i would highly recommend people also listen to this um senator in the u.s called cory booker who i'd kind of heard of but hadn't realized um how much how much he could impact me actually and i listened to this interview it's brilliant interview and he was talking one of the things he mentioned was before you tell me about your religion show me in your actions um he's a christian um but talked a lot about faith and his role in government etc and some of his own challenges and all of that and a black guy who's had all sorts of issues around racism etc is brilliant um but i just feel that we you know sometimes the um the idea of mercy and kindness towards others whoever they are or whatever they are because it's also just creatures people of you know creation um it's, it's missing sometimes from lots of Muslims and it's so heartbreaking. You know, I feel like I listen to, um, I love listening to Sira and sort of stories and how we can learn from directly from things that the Prophet said and what he did, peace be upon him. Um, and then I just don't see it in day to day. I think there's so much harshness. I think, I mean, even if you look at Muslim to Muslim, if that's what you want to frame it through and how Muslims treat other Muslims and looking at some of the stuff that happens on social media and how people are attacked for saying something or believing or doing something slightly differently and how they're dealt with by other people, supposedly Muslim with capital M. Uh, I just find it, I think, where's the softness and the kind of just kindness and, you know, we speak in theory about covering people's faults and... Um, because we've been taught that and how do we um, uh, make sure that we see the good in people but in reality I don't always see that happening and you know what if Muslims even if we we take the Muslims in the UK a couple of million of us and honestly if we 
started to do this more and then told the world that we're doing this more in that sense and showing the kind of stuff that we know we can do, it would make so much difference. You know, we've got so much negativity to overcome that it's going to take a lot. But we know what we have to offer the world as well. You know, it's not to say that people are not good and Muslims are not doing good stuff. Of course they are. But I just feel, you know, where's the element of compassion and kindness? And, you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, was optimistic and hopeful and reassured people and was positive. These are the traits that I get when I hear about him. But where's that? You know, where's that in our within each other? And then how do we reflect that outward? You know, and as this um, person said, before you tell me about your religion, show me in your actions. Well, we're not showing in our actions. We're not even, you know, showing it with each other. We're certainly not telling the world. And, you know, it's not to say that we have to apologise. You know, this whole thing around always comes up around when an attack happens and the person, you know, it's called Muhammad or Khalid or this, or, you know, we kind of heart sinks moment, that type of thing. And it's very easy for us to then become defensive because, well, we don't need to tell you because you should already know that this is not us. This kind of harshness loses the fact that, you know, yes, we can talk forever about how bad the media is, and it is, and we need to do something, and we need to get better at dealing with it. But to only focus on that and then be very defensive and harsh, I think, about our reactions to when something bad happens, and forget the fact that, you know, people like my mum other people that are watching the news and trying to understand gosh what's happened and do they are they that and can I trust my Muslim neighbor and well she gives me food so is she good and you know so can't we just let some of that go and be compassionate you know I set up this thing called Sadaka Day which is focusing on one day of social action the and encouraging Muslims to just get more involved in volunteering is my big thing but the the sort of strap line is do enough of the right things because I really believe that if we do enough of the right things, then, you know, we can make so much impact. Our faith um, teaches us what we need to do. The Prophet's example is there. We just need to show it and let it come out of our, all of our veins and all of our uh, actions and how we come across and show compassion and friendship. So, Julia, as we come towards the end of the interview, tell us about your last item. Okay, so my last one is, um, and again, I mean, gosh, I could talk what, what, one hour about this, but... Um, you know, the service you do for others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. And I hadn't really heard it particularly, um, and it was attributed to Muhammad Ali, and I hadn't really heard it until he passed away, and then I kind of heard it more. I've had it printed on T-shirts and people doing volunteering. It's a superb uh, quote. Um, but, you know, even more than that, he it, it was very moving when he passed away. I mean, I always knew that he had impacted people. You know, I've listened to people talking about him in with, within the boxing world and always been quite fascinated by that. But also, um, what was really powerful was his um, funeral, the way it was broadcast on TV and the impact that he'd had on so many different types of people was um, spoke for itself. And I also... Um, Linked to that, there was a. I remember at the funeral of Nelson Mandela, Jacob Zuma at the time said, What is it about the man that elicits this outpouring of sincere emotion? The answer is that when people see goodness in a person, 
They respond by reflecting goodness back at that person and on their fellow men and women. You know, you can't um, fake the kind of outpouring of grief or a feeling of loss that people had for Muhammad Ali and, of course, Nelson Mandela and so many others. But Muhammad Ali, in this case, you can't fake that stuff. Um, it was because he had impacted people. I was lucky. I went to the exhibition that they had at the O2 just you know, a few months before he passed away. And it was very moving, really, when you looked at quotes and things that people were saying about him. I don't really understand boxing, and I never have and probably never will. But it was really him as a person that impacted. He wasn't perfect either. And you kind of found out some of that stuff afterwards and all the things that he did and didn't do and whatever. Um, he made a huge impact on people. And if we can't walk through our life's journey, however short or long that is here, um, and make an impact on people so that when we pass away, we um, people feel the loss or they're able to talk about us in, in this kind of way, then what's the point, really? And I just feel that in terms of our approach to charity and giving, it needs to be so much more about service and time than it does about money um, and that's something I feel very passionate about so this idea of the service you do for others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth is a brilliant uh, quote and it's great for t-shirts and I've had it on many t-shirts now and Julia as we cast you on this desert island um, how do you cope how do you think you'll cope with the loneliness and the solitude no look I love being on my I love people I also love being on my own so the um, bit on my own bit, I think I will like. I don't like the dark on my own. And although I have a very firm belief in God, and God will be there with me, I do think I'll be scared of whatever's around in the dark and animals and noises and stuff. So I'm a bit of a scaredy cat in that way. But actually being on my own, I think is fine. Practically, how will I manage making food and all of that? I'm not sure I'll do very well. So I probably won't last very long. Um, but the idea of being on my own is quite appealing because I do love being on my own and mostly I'm not on my own so I love being on my own but the sort of actual survival bit I think I'll probably find very difficult and you can take a book with you what book would you take with you on this desert island okay so I am being very cheeky and saying instead of a book I'd like an audio book or an iPod with books on or some sort of audible something so I'm sure you can be generous and make that happen for me because I would fill it with um different things and books but also quotes and inspirational stuff that I think other people have taught a bit like we've been talking about today so I'm I'd quite like to be okay that's yours <laughs> and, and if you could take a luxury item what would you take with yeah, you? yeah so I thought about this but actually I came to the point that I would um like to have some sort of photo album friends family moments that have happened to me in life that I could remember um, so I would make something like that with lots of different things in it and then be able to look through that regularly and remind myself of what my life was like before and you know the people that are important because for me people are at the heart of what, what I am and what I do and um, so I'd love to have a reminder of some of those key moments in my life up to that point. Okay Sister Julie Siddiqui thank you so much for sharing a lot of your thoughts and your, your gems with us. Uh, we wish you all the best thank you. your future endeavours may I reward you Inshallah. for all the I mean, good work that you're doing and Inshallah. continue to give you strength uh, and barakah in what you're doing mm -hmm. remember us in your du'as Inshallah. thank you and for doing it it's been brilliant thank you so much Assalamu alaikum thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems 